you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15. We are in Mark's gospel in a series entitled Finding and Following Jesus. Uh, we've been in this series since the beginning of this year. And we are coming uh, quickly to a close. Um, it looks like the, the very last sermon of Mark's gospel will be on Vision Sunday, which is January the 9th. And it works out really well. And so uh, we're going to uh, preach uh, three or four messages between now and then. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, now let me say this. Uh, we have a kind of a special table set up in the foyer uh, this morning uh, by Ella Thompson. She's one of the uh, young girls in, in, in our church, the daughter of Bryce and Tammy Thompson. And she's quite the entrepreneur. And uh, she has a little business where she makes these car fresheners herself by hand. And uh, normally I, I don't let every young child come in and sell what they're selling or whatever. This is special because Ella is very close to her children's church director, Amy Knudsen, who was diagnosed with cancer not too long ago and just finished her chemo treatments. And Ella came to me and said, Pastor, can I make some freshies to sell at church? And I want to give all the proceeds to help Miss Amy pay for her chemo treatments. How are you going to say no to that? That's amazing. And so they take card, uh, Venmo, if you have that app, they take cash and check, of course. And so if you want to get by there and support that cause, um, then uh, that would be a blessing to young Ella. She's been looking forward to this day for, for several weeks now. And so it'd be great if you, as you're visiting the missionary table back there, you stop by and buy you what she calls a freshie. And uh, that'll be a help to her and a blessing to Miss Amy as well. Well, if I have my math right, we're about six days away from Christmas. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music, which is why we sang one official Christmas carol today. But I sang one so you can't leave the church, you know. I mean, I sang one. We're going to sing another one tonight. Um, and so you can't, get, you can't get too mad. Last Sunday night was dedicated to Christmas music through the kiddos in our, in our school. And so, I mean, it's, it's all good. Um, but I love Christmas Day. I really do. I love Christmas Day primarily because of what it's come to represent, at least for Christians, a day to remember and celebrate Christ's birth. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of long-standing traditions. We just weren't that kind of family. We, we were, I had a good family, but we weren't real traditional all the time. But there was one tradition that, that we had every Christmas morning. And that is me and my, my older brother TJ, younger sister Tiffany, would go and wrestle my dad out of bed as soon as we got up, and uh, it's amazing on Christmas Day, kids don't need an alarm clock, um, don't need anything to wake up early. It's phenomenal how it works. Uh, we went and wrestled him up, and he would come out, and before we, we got to open the presents, the tradition at the Prater House was he opened up the Bible to Luke chapter 2, and he read the Christmas story. And then he prayed before we opened our Christmas presents. And I can remember, especially when I got older, thinking at least two thoughts as my dad was doing that. Number one, I, I, I was thinking, Dad, can you please hurry up? <laughs> right? Oh, I, I want to open my Christmas presents. Number two, I, I, I was thinking, Dad, could you please put some clothes on? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to concentrate on Jesus and swaddling clothes, and you're not even wearing clothes. <laughs> I know we wrestled you out of bed, but put some pants on at least. Come on.
but at least, at least in his whitey tidies, he was still willing. He was still willing to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. I thought that would lighten the room a little bit. Get that out of your mind's eye if you can, please. We got much more important things to talk about today. I love it. I invite you back next week where the pastor of this church is going to be speaking for the first time. You'll love his preaching ministry, I promise. All seriousness, I'm thankful for the spiritual emphasis my parents put on Christmas. Something dawned on me, though, as I was preparing to preach this text in the Gospel of Mark and really wrestling last couple of weeks with whether or not I wanted to, to preach such a passage so close to Christmas. The passage that, that's before us contains the death of Jesus. The cross, it's Calvary, it's somber, it's gloomy, it's even a dark text of Scripture. And I wrestled with preaching it today because Christmas is supposed to be bright, not dark. It's supposed to be happy, not gloomy. It's supposed to be merry, not messy. So at first it didn't make much sense to me to preach about the death of Christ during a time of year when we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Christ. But then I read a long quote from an author by the name of John MacArthur that helped me realize that Christ's death is just as much a part of the Christmas story as Christ's birth. In fact, by only putting the emphasis on his birth in Bethlehem and leaving out his death at Calvary, by, by reading only Luke 2 on Christmas Day and not reading Mark 15, maybe we've unintentionally forgotten about the most important part of the Christmas story. John MacArthur said it well. The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth. Nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth ever revealed to men, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die. Only Jesus could do it. Jesus came to earth, of course, to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done them all without being born as a human. Could have simply appeared like the angel the Lord did in the Old Testament and accomplished everything in the list above without actually becoming a man. But he had one more reason for coming. He came to die. Here's a side to the Christmas story, MacArthur says, that isn't often told. The soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. The sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. That's the title of the sermon today. Born to die. Now please don't think I'm trying to put a damper on your Christmas spirit. It's appropriate to commemorate the birth of Christ, but let's not make the mistake of leaving Jesus as a baby in a manger. 
Keep in mind that his birth was just the first step in God's glorious plan of redemption. Remember that, that it's the triumph of Christ's sacrificial death that actually gives meaning to his humble birth. You can't truly celebrate one without the other. With that in mind, I'd like to read our entire text at large and, and then discuss three facts about Christ's death that are significant both to the Christmas story and to our lives today. Would you follow along? Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band and they clothed him with purple <coughs> and plaited a crown of thorns, put it on about his head. And began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed. And it spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. They bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. The superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, that thou destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold... He called Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed, gave him to drink, saying, let alone. Let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. We sang about verse 38 this morning. And the veil of the temple was written twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Father, we bow before you and I feel it necessary to pray. Before I preach this text of scripture, understanding that on my very best day of articulation, I could never get it right. This is such a weighty passage of scripture, but it's so necessary for us to understand. So my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would articulate what I never could, especially to the heart of the one or two or more that are in here and don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. Oh, Lord, make the gospel so clear to them. Help them to understand it. Give them faith to believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three reasons the death of Christ is significant. Number one, the death of Christ was a fulfillment of prophecy. 
The prophecies in the Bible that deal with Jesus are called messianic prophecies. They say there are around 456 of them total and that Jesus fulfilled at least 300 of them while he was on earth. And no doubt the rest of them will be fulfilled at a second coming. Mark 15 alone contains a good number of messianic prophecies that were fulfilled at Jesus' death. Study with me. The first prophecy is this, the Messiah's silence before death. Isaiah prophesied of that in, in chapter 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. That prophecy was fulfilled in Mark 15 verse 4 and 5. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus uh, yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Another prophecy, the Messiah would be beaten and spat upon. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That was fulfilled in Mark 15, 19. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him. Another prophecy, the Messiah would have his clothes divided up by casting lots. The psalmist prophesied of this. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. It was fulfilled in Mark 15, 24. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Another prophecy, the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Mark wrote, and with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Another prophecy, the Messiah would have people wag their heads as they saw him die. The psalmist prophesied this would happen thousands of years before it ever happened. He said, all they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That happened at the cross in Mark 15. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, all that thou destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Another prophecy, the Messiah would experience the curse of darkness. Deuteronomy speaks of this. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Prophecy, the Messiah would be abandoned by his father. The psalmist wrote, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? And we know Jesus uttered those words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is that so important for us to study? Why is it important for us to understand? Well, I want you to see that what happened in Mark 15, what happened at Calvary, was scripted. It was planned to the finest detail. Nothing about Christ's death was a surprise to God. It was all prophesied. To quote John MacArthur again, he said, it greatly concerns me today that there are some who are always talking about the fact that Jesus was a wonderful person who through a set of circumstances got himself into a mess and wound up getting crucified. However, the Word of God clearly tells us that Jesus Christ was never trapped. He was never tricked. He was never surprised. He was never a victim. He went to the cross of his own design, of his own will, because he was born for that express purpose. 
as horrific as the death of Jesus was, hear me, friend, it wasn't an accident. It was predicted in full thousands of years before it happened. Everything about his death was on purpose for a purpose. That means it didn't surprise the father. Jesus' death was not some senseless tragedy that should have never happened. It wasn't merely a case of injustice from the greedy and envious religious leaders. It was planned before before time to happen just as it happened. And here's how that helps us today in 2021. The tragedies that we face in this life are not outside the Father's control either. As senseless as your tragedy may appear to be, and as hopeless as your tragedy may leave you feeling, your father is still good through it all and has a plan of redemption and sanctification in your life, even through the most tragic events that you face. Since 2018, Christmas for the Prater family has never been the same. That's the year my brother passed away in an accident while working on his truck. Every Christmas we'll be reminded no one even has to say a word. And we'll be reminded just by his absence of that tragedy. Every holiday our minds will go to the place we were When we receive that phone call. Every Christmas our family, as much as we try to trust God, will wrestle with why God did what he did. Because in our minds, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why a healthy man who was serving on his school board, owned his own business, volunteering in his children's church, raising his girls to love and fear God by having family devotion time every night. Why would God choose him? And in our mind, I'm telling you, we struggle, we wrestle with connecting those dots every Christmas time. Every time his birthday comes around, every time we see his girls again, And here's what we have to do. We have to still trust the Father. We have to trust that as for God, His ways are perfect. They're they're beyond knowing. They're beyond finding out. They're unsearchable. But at the end of the day, we have to believe that if He was sovereign over the death of His own Son, then He was sovereign over the death of my big brother. And you may be facing some type of tragedy yourself this Christmas season. Something that like my family, you'll forever be reminded of during the holidays. If if that's you today, never forget, friend, that God is always in control. And God is always working things together for his good purposes in and through your life, even when it hurts. That's one of the reasons why Jesus' death is significant. To our lives because it's a fulfillment of prophecy and that means that nothing takes God by surprise. Here's the second reason. The death of Christ was humiliating and excruciating. You might think, well, why? That's dark. 
It's gruesome. Why, why is that so significant about his death? I'll admit this isn't the part of this text in Christ's death that I personally like talking about. It carries the most weight. It seems to be the darkest. But I will tell you, it is absolutely significant in the scope of God's redemptive plan for the world. So we have to talk about it. Christ's death was humiliating in that he was mocked as the king of the Jews. The soldiers sarcastically got on their knees and pretended to be worshiping this king. It was humiliating when they spat, on his, spat upon his face. He had to wear a crown of thorns and a robe of purple as they dressed him to be the king they thought he was pretending to be. They railed on him and reviled him as they told him to come off the cross, Jesus, and save yourself. Be a man of your word. Destroy the temple. It wasn't just humiliating, it was excruciating. We didn't read it, but before he ever put a cross on his back, he was scourged. He was whipped and beaten by a Roman soldier just to the point of death. This was the most painful part of the crucifixion process. Some think that maybe the cross bore the most pain for Jesus, but it really didn't. The only, only reason that crucifixion included a cross was to prolong the death of the criminal. They wanted to humiliate him as much as possible. They, they, they wanted to use uh, his, his crime and his death as a means to teach people, don't be like this guy. The truth is, as they put him over the whipping post, they could have killed him. But they stopped. They mastered the art of stopping just in time to where he wouldn't lose the amount of blood necessary to die. Place a crown of thorns into his skull. They ripped the beard from his face. He had to carry the horizontal beam of the cross on his back as its splinters dug into his open wounds. As they laid him down and attached that horizontal beam to the vertical beam, they drove nails into his wrist and his feet. Jesus was even offered an anesthetic but refused so that he could feel the full force of pain that was necessary to pay for our sins. He wanted to drink all of the cup of God's wrath. He faced the abandonment of his own father during such a time, which I believe was the most excruciating pain for him of all. The reason I chose the word excruciating to describe Christ's pain is because the word itself literally means out of the cross. It's the best word to describe the physical and emotional and mental pain of being hung on a cross to suffocate. I could go on and and give you some facts about what medical doctors have put together in their estimation of what Jesus would have felt like. But that's not necessary today because Mark didn't even do that. It wasn't necessary for him to accomplish his purpose. He was writing to Romans. They had seen crucifixion before. They knew what it was like. They didn't need all the details. But at the same time, these Romans, they faced the same threat. For, for, for believing in this crucified Jesus, they were being mocked. They were suffering. They were being forsaken. They were being abandoned. They were losing their jobs. 
They were facing physical pain. Should they continue to unapologetically and courageously follow God? So as Roman Christians reading about the crucifixion, they didn't need to know what the actual process felt like and looked like. They were experiencing that. What they needed was to see Jesus's faithfulness through such pain and Jesus's faithfulness through such humiliation so that they could understand what it really looks like for them to deny themselves and for them to carry their cross. And the same is true for us. You don't need to know what all the doctors say about how Jesus felt. You can study that on your own, but that's not what's most important because you'll you'll likely never be hung on a cross. But you will suffer. As Christians, you will face trial that you will feel is unnecessary that you feel that it's confusing. That you will feel it's out of place given what, what, what you're doing for the cause of Christ. We'll encounter difficult seasons where nothing seems to be going right in our lives even though we're serving God. And when that happens, we'll be tempted to blame God and give up on Him. Hey God, if this is what serving you gets me, I'm out. And we'll put down our cross. We'll go through tragic moments where something unexpected happens and it feels like the bottom is falling out from beneath us. And in those times, we'll wrestle with truly believing that God is good. We'll go through abandonment. Maybe some of you, 2022 is is going to bring a trial of abandonment or or relational disappointment or betrayal that that leaves you feeling worthless or feeling depressed or feeling all alone and feeling like you can't trust anybody anymore, including the Savior. Here's the good news, though. We can look to Jesus during these times. He faced it all. He endured his suffering so that we can have the faith and courage to endure our suffering. Hebrews 2 teaches us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Well, lest ye get weary. And faint in your minds. Christian, are you tired today? Look to Jesus. Are you sick today? Look to Jesus. Are you discouraged today? Look to Jesus. Are you lonely today? Look to Jesus. Do you feel betrayed today? Look to Jesus. Have you been abandoned in your life? Look to Jesus. Are you suffering the loss of a loved one and missing them severely today? Look to Jesus. Are you just weary on your journey and tempted to put down your cross? Look to Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith because he started and finished his race. We can start and finish ours even if it's painfully difficult. Jesus' death was a fulfillment of prophecy that's significant because it teaches us that nothing takes God by surprise. Jesus' death was humiliating. It was excruciating. That's significant because it teaches us where to look to find courage during our humiliating and excruciating times. There's one more thing I want you to notice about Jesus' death that makes it significant. The death of Christ, number three, opened a new way to God. Verse 37 says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. 
and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. We know from the other gospel accounts that the loud cry that Jesus shouted out was him saying, it is finished. Meaning atonement has been made. The work of salvation is done. And as tangible evidence to that cry, the veil or the curtain of the temple was split in two. Now don't miss this. It was torn from the top to the bottom. Meaning this is not something man could have done. The curtain went from the floor all the way to the top of the temple. That was too high for man to get to. Man could perhaps rent the veil or tear the veil from the bottom to the top, but not from the top to the bottom. This was God's doing. Here's why this is so significant. Because for all this time, God had confined his glory to a place called the Holy of Holies. This, this gigantic curtain is what separated the Holy of Holies from the common man. Only priests could go into the Holy of Holies and they could only go in there once a year as they went in to make atonement for man's sin. But with Christ's death, listen, the veil was torn. The barrier was broken down. And, and now God doesn't have to be accessed by way of a priest. He doesn't have to be accessed inside of a large temple building. Our sins don't have to be atoned for by the blood of an animal. God now dwells in the hearts of those who accept him by faith. This new way to God, listen, is open to everybody. Not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. No one, hear me, no one has exclusive access to God or limited access to God based on their religious background or based on their social or economic standing or based on their skin color or their nationality. And frankly, not even because of the name that's written on their church sign. Everyone who wants to come to God by faith in Jesus alone can do so. There was instant proof of that in Mark 15 verse 39. And after, or, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave it the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now I'm going to preach on that verse next Sunday. It's part of my message, so I'll leave out some of the details for sake of next week's message. But the centurion was an unbeliever. He was a Gentile. He was a pagan man. He, he was the guy in charge of overseeing the entire crucifixion process. He killed Jesus, but even he was able to place his faith in Jesus and enter into a relationship with God, which tells me, friend, that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus' death made it possible for you to have access to God. It made it possible for you to be forgiven by God. It made it possible for you to be made right with God. It made it possible for you to know his saving grace in your life today. For the Christian, this new and living way is described for us and the benefits of it in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 4. Having therefore brethren, he's writing to brothers, to those in the brotherhood, in the church. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Don't have to bring an animal. Don't have to knock on the door of a priest. How? By a new and living way, 
which he have consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh and having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hebrews 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love those verses. Man, thank God that we now have a high priest in Jesus who knows and has felt everything we'll ever go through. And we can approach him boldly with whatever we're facing and be absolutely sure that we'll find grace to help in time of need. This, my friend, is the new and living way that Jesus created for us through his death. His birth alone did not accomplish this. It started with his birth. But he had to die in order to create this new and living way to God. And praise the Lord, he did. A number of years ago, a seven-year-old boy by the name of Martin Turgeon slipped off a dock and fell into the Prairie River in Canada. News reports said at least a dozen adults saw him struggle for a few moments before he sank and drowned. As you can imagine, the question when that happened was, why in the world didn't those adults dive in to save him? Well, the answer is that just upstream, there was a plant used to dump raw sewage directly into that river, and it made it dirty and dangerous to one's health. So nobody jumped in to save young Martin. One onlooker had the courage of being interviewed. And was quoted as saying, we weren't going to jump in there. The water was much too dirty. I share that story with you to illustrate the depths which God was willing to go in order to demonstrate his love for you and me. Unlike the people on the dock who, who stood and watched Martin Turgeon drown in the Prairie River well, because they were unwilling to dive into the murky, messy, mucky water. Hey, God chose more than 2,000 years ago now to plunge into the mess of human sin and human sorrow in order to seek and to save that which was lost. He was born to die, and he did. Our children often seeing away in a manger. We take pictures. It's the only time I can get moms to sit on the front row. Videos. We clap, we cry. Sadly, we don't cry because of the message of the song. We cry because it's cute. And we become immune to why the songwriter wrote that. We cry because of the cuteness of our kids singing, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. I think another verse goes something like, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. And we aren't even phased by the reality of that song. It's almost like we're immune to the fact that the Son of God woke up beside cows 
We've made his birth a little less messy than it really was. Jesus, hear me, was willing to get messy so that you could be saved. He's willing to carry a cross so that you could have a way to God. So Christian, do not lose sight of the complete Christmas story this year. On Christmas Day in our living room, we will read Luke chapter 2. But then we'll turn to Mark 15. Because I want my son to know that it's not just a cute birth that saves you. It's a gruesome death. And we need to worship the Savior for his death before we ever open a single gift. Because that is the greatest gift of all. And if you're here today and you were invited by a friend, or maybe just during this time of year you're a little bit more sensitive to spiritual things and you find yourself in church. Number one, I want to say you're welcome here. But number two, it's on purpose that you're here. It's on purpose that God had me in Mark 15 for you to hear the message of the cross. Maybe you've trusted in something else your entire life to take you to heaven. Friend, listen, it's only Jesus that can get you there. He said out of his own mouth, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The cross, if you would imagine it, is a bridge. It's a bridge that gets you from lostness to being justified. To be made right with God. You've got to understand the gospel by way of the cross. And I want to invite you to believe that message today. I want to invite you to trust that message today. I want to invite you to get saved today. How can you do that? How can you do that? Well, we're going to have an invitation. I'm going to invite Christians to come and just worship the Lord on their knees today. I think a text like this demands that we humble ourselves. And say, Lord, thank you for the cross. Help me not lose sight of it this Christmas season. And we're going to have a pastoral staff member stand up here in front. I would invite you just to come to him and say, I want to, I want to know what it means to be saved. We'll not put you on the spot. You don't have to say anything out loud. We won't embarrass you, call you by name. We'll just take you out into the hall and privately show you from God's word what the good news of the gospel means for your future. And if you want, you can trust on that. If you need some more time, we'll give you more time. But boy, I would love to extend that invitation to you today.